am Andy, one of the elders, one of the other elders, and this morning's scripture reading and leader in prayer. This morning's scripture is found in Philippians 1, verse 27 through Philippians 2, verse 8. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from self-ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, and even death on a cross. Let's pray. Our Father, a powerful, everlasting, unsearchable, we praise you, I praise you, as I lead us all in prayer. I ask for your blessing and guidance. Help me to pray for this church body this morning. Lord, guide my words. We come before you, our God, this morning to give you praise, just as we have in song already praised you. We offer up our adoration, our gratitude for all that you are and all that you provide with our hearts full of love. We cannot grasp how infinite of a God that you are. We cannot know each and every of your thoughts or of your will. God, we don't know how you individually, personally involve yourself in each of our lives, but you do that. And God, that is such a great, wondrous mystery, and we thank you for that. In faith, we trust you, and we rely on you, and we rely on your promises to take care of us. You love us as a good father and help us grow into the church that you planned. Your will is good and your plans are perfect. We believe this. Our Father, we confess now that we have not always followed your guidance or even wanted it at times. We are sinful and selfish, but through your love and through your Son, we can ask for forgiveness. Lord, we seek and ask for that forgiveness through Jesus now. 
Father, we thank you for this new life. We thank you that we have your son, Jesus. We thank you for the grace that you have given. We thank you for the Holy Spirit indwelling each of us, for the guidance and for the ability to worship you. Lord, we ask for your healing hand on this body of believers, all who need physical healing, emotional healing, spiritual healing from God. We ask for your miraculous will to be done here at North Shore for the glory of your name. And specifically, we ask for Nellie Paris's husband, Joe, for Ruth Stepke, for Dan Zwicker. We pray that for their physical needs, that you would heal their bodies. We pray for a miraculous recovery for them. And Lord, we ask that you also would strengthen the bodies of all those here at North Shore and restore them to excellent health. For the rest of the service, Lord, I pray that you would work in each of our hearts, that you would give us the ability to understand your word, that you would give us open, pliable hearts to be molded by your word as Brian brings it to us. This morning, I ask that you would give Brian extra strength, extra clarity of mind, that he would deliver your message to us and that those words would be your words. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Andy. As Andy read, today's message is based out of Philippians 1 and 2. Paul wrote this letter while in prison and wanted to encourage the church to keep doing what they were doing. He didn't have much for them in the form of rebuke, but as with all his letters, recognized the need for constant vigilance against pride and discord. Paul was encouraging the Philippian church to be united and warns them of the pitfalls that come if they aren't. That's where this message is going this morning. We'll be looking at how a church that seems to be doing everything right still needs to be encouraged to be united together through Christ. So wherever there is a group of people, unity will, be, will only increase the likelihood of achieving a common goal. Now this is... This could be for good reasons, hopefully, or it could also be used for evil. Like take Nazi Germany, for example. I'm sure there was a whole bunch of folks that were either willingly or unwillingly united behind the killing of millions of Jews. Obviously, that was the evil side of unity. But when talking about unity, it's important that we define what it is that we are united about or for. So as believers in Christ... We are encouraged to seek unity over and over again in Scripture, especially through Paul's letters. So, and, and for example, the Trinity, its very essence and how it operates is a picture of unity. So unity among believers in Christ, as we will see in today's message, is one of the hallmarks of Christian life. But first, let's pray and ask God for guidance and wisdom through this message. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to call you our Father. As part, of our, as part of your chosen people, we are humbled to be here. 
Help us this morning to, to really get this stuff. You have told us through your word that unity as believers is important. So therefore, it's important to us. May everything that I say this morning be only for you. And may you be glorified in all that we do. Amen. So before we get to Paul, we're going to look at how Jesus views this topic. Now we know that Jesus was and is the greatest teacher ever. So when he spoke, multitudes of people listened. Actually, it's not even fair to other teachers because his words literally created everything. So I think it's safe to say that that we should always carefully and diligently read and study his words. And furthermore, when he is praying, we should pay extra careful attention. So the prayer that we are looking at is called the, the high priestly prayer. It's actually the longest recorded prayer from Jesus in any of the Gospels. Jesus prays this prayer after he finishes up his instructions, his final instructions to the disciples, and shortly before he was to be crucified. He begins the prayer by praying for those in his close inner circle, and then opens it up to all those that God has given him. So if you are now a believer in Christ as your Savior, he's praying for you. So Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, and that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be, be, become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that, you, that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. That's Jesus. So there is much, much there. Now, if the Son of God, who controls and rules all things, he's sovereign over all and knows all things, and he's all-powerful and is in a position of depending on God to fulfill all his words, how much more are we dependent on God? So if Jesus was dependent upon the Father to fulfill his word, how much more are we dependent on the Father? So even though there is so much going on in this prayer, I want to highlight how Jesus is praying for a oneness that is like the oneness that is shared between the Father and the Son. He repeats it several times, in fact, four times total. Verses 21 says that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. The unity that Jesus is talking about here is an internal unity. It's something brought about because of who we are, who he has made us to be. He's not talking about external factors causing us to just get along because of practical reasons. Jesus mentions our oneness a total of four times in this prayer, so it's clearly important. This unity exists because 
of us having the same internal attraction to something. That something is Christ. Paul understands this completely, and we'll see how he flushes it out in, his, in this letter to the Philippians. So within the text that Andy read for us, there are five principles that I'd like to look at, and hopefully we'll all get something out of this and put them into practice. The first principle is about our conduct. So we'll be looking at how Paul encourages the Philippians to live. Basically, what does one's life look like when we're living for this unity? The second principle is, what's the motive for unity? Paul pleads with them to strive for this unity, and we'll dig into why that's important. The third principle is the defining characteristics of unity. Fourth is, how do we get it? What do I do, practically speaking? And then finally, the fifth principle is the who or the what this model of unity is all about. And guess what? It's about Jesus. So our text for today began with Paul urging the Philippian church to step up their game a bit. It seems as if the bar is going to be set impossibly high. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I'm, I, am here, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He's calling for them to behave in a way that will match the message of their preaching. So he, he is saying that they should behave in a way that is consistent with that message. He's calling for them to live with integrity and spiritual commitment. And it's that character of their conduct that's important. So the opening words of verse 27 is where all the meat is. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So let me first say that what, do, what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we to live a life in such a way that we could deserve the gospel. Because that will never happen. It doesn't mean that we could become valuable enough of a person so that we could merit the gospel. And it doesn't mean that God will reward us with the gospel because of anything we did. But what it does mean, though, is that just the reverse. We are to live in such a way as to call attention to the infinite worth of the gospel, not to ourselves. So living worthy of the gospel means living the way that you would if the gospel had infinite worth to you. Living the way you would if you treasured the gospel, if you treasured Christ, if you treasured the cross, if you treasured the forgiveness of sins, if you treasured eternal life with God, if you treasured all these things above everything. So that's how we're, we're asked to live. Paul goes on to talk about him wanting to see the church standing firm in the midst of adversity and persecution. He says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. That's the clear sign of them, of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. When he says stand firm, used here, it has to do with his spiritual character. It has to do with godliness and purity, virtue, holiness, obedience, those are all internal attributes that affect our attitudes. All the external stuff seems to be inconsequential. 
Paul understood that the potential for disunity and discord or conflict and division was always lurking and was a potential disaster for believers, even in a church that has their act together. It was possible then in the early churches, and certainly as now today, that this was so much on Paul's mind that every time he wrote a letter, he would urge the churches to strive towards unity. It was a constant message in his letters. He knew that even in a church that had a godly leadership, was doctrinally sound, had ample examples of serving the community and caring for those around them, even a church like that could easily fall prey to the snares that breed disunity. William Barclay, a minister that passed away about 50 years ago or so, and had questionable theology on many fronts, but he had an interesting take on this idea. He said, there is a sense in which this is a danger of every healthy church. You see, it is when people are really in earnest, when their beliefs really matter to them, when they are eager to carry out their own plans and their own schemes that they are most apt to get up against each other. The greater their enthusiasm, the greater the danger that they may collide. So although I don't agree with a lot of his theology, I believe he had a point with this. It seems to make sense. So the fact that a church has true doctrine and eager volunteers does not preclude the possibility of discord. So why is it important to be of the same mind? Why would Jesus mention it multiple times in that amazing prayer to the Father? Why would Paul stress it in the letter, in every letter that he writes? The first verse in chapter 1 highlights four motives for spiritual unity. Verse 1 says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... I won't claim to understand all the grammatical rules associated with the original Greek, but a commentary I read on this passage indicated that the if in those verses could also be interchanged with the word since or because. So Paul is saying that these are driving motivations. These are the truths that should compel you. I like the way that uh, John MacArthur puts it in a sermon that I Um, that I, I watched on this subject from him. He says, Are you not stimulated by the influence of Christ in you? Are you not so stimulated by his outpouring of encouragement to you, his gentle, gracious, constant blessing? Are you not so moved that, that you will not respond by maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? If you won't, then know where your sin is placed. It is not a sin against the church, It is not a sin against doctrine. It is, a sin, it is not a sin against moral law. It is a sin against the relationship, a sin against your relationship to Christ. It is an act of ingratitude that disregards his personal desire for his church. So Jesus wants us to be united. His prayer to the Father said just that. To read it again, this is what Jesus said, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So what is unity? How is it defined? What, what does unity look like? There are three principles listed in our text this morning that highlight that unity. The first principle is that we, we all think alike. 
It says in verse 2 that we are to be of the same mind. At first take, this could sound a bit alarming, because aren't we still individuals? But as we develop this, you'll see that it has more to do with our attitudes than our preferences or choices. Paul says to the Corinthian church, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So how are we to be of the same mind? Paul describes how to do this in Romans 8. He says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but not to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Excuse me. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So in order to be of the same mind, we, we need to all be living and thinking according to the Spirit. We need to set our lives such that we are drawn to things of the Spirit. Conflict enters because the Spirit and the flesh don't work well together. The flesh never wants to be humble or self-sacrificing. It's because it's all about glorifying. What we need to do is all about glorifying Jesus. It's our attitudes that need to agree. We need to be living and acting in accordance with the Spirit, which wants to elevate Jesus. The flesh only wants to put ourselves first. The second principle of unity is to have the same love. This principle is essentially a byproduct of the first, being of the same mind. It basically means to love everybody the same. And this should tell us right away that we're not talking about our emotions because I can't emotionally be attracted to everybody. It's a mutual sacrificial service, what we're talking about. In Romans 12.10, Paul puts it this way, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. It means to meet one another's needs. Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. 1 John 3 goes a step further and says that if you see that one of your brothers or sisters is in need and you fail to help them out, then how is it that God's love abides in you? That's so blunt, but the point is made loud and clear. Love acts on the behalf of someone else's needs. Like God so loved the world that he gave what man so desperately needed. The third principle, as Paul puts it, is to be in full accord and of one mind. This may seem a bit redundant from the first principle, as the first principle is being of the same mind, but it's actually not. Or in fact, you could even say it is bringing it more or less full circle. One commentator wrote that the word in the Greek for this phrase is only used once in the entire New Testament, and it's even possible that Paul made it up. It literally means one-souled. Some transitions or some translations of the Bible have recorded this section to say united in spirit, intent on one purpose, rather than the ESV recording it as being in full accord and of one mind. Nevertheless, when we have all the same passion, same desire, same ambition, we will then be in, one, in full accord and of one mind, as well as united in spirit, 
intent on one purpose. The problems and conflicts occur when our passions and desires begin to point towards our own glorification and satisfaction rather than that of the glorification of Christ. Just as water and oil don't mix, the fleshly desires and spirit desires cannot be combined. Paul is really saying that the, uh, the same thing in three different ways. All these three principles, being in the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind, all point to this, that God should be glorified and only his kingdom shall reign. So now, early on I mentioned that the unity of the church was inward and not outward. This unity that Jesus asked for and Paul pleads for is something that, in, that is internally compelling, not externally controlled. It's more heartfelt than religious. It's not particularly verbal as much as it is emotional or spiritual. It's in the union of hearts and minds and souls in a common cause. It's not people just being united because they're, they're in the same container, if you will, or in the same social group. It's people who are literally attracted to each other because they're pulled by the same power, the power of the gospel of Christ. Now, speaking of containers, here's an analogy I heard on another uh, sermon of this topic. If, imagine if you have a bag filled with marbles. You have this certain unity amongst the marbles in it. They're all squished together, right? They have to be. All those marbles are pushed against each other, packed together tight, but that which holds them together is just the bag. The cause of unity amongst those marbles is something on the outside that holds them in. As soon as you tear the bag, the marbles are everywhere because there's nothing intrinsic or internal to keep them together. But now, on the other hand, if you have a magnet and you put that magnet into a bunch of metal shavings, the shavings will all stick to the magnet. Not because there is an external container, but because there is an internal force. And they are all pulled to each other through each other because, because of um, what Christ has done. And that's how the church is to be. It's not a collection of marbles in the same bag. We are all to be a people who are pressed together against each other because we're all magnetized by the same force, and that force is the power of Christ. That's the internal unity of the church. That's what a believer's unity looks like. It pulls through each of us to the center, which is Christ. Now, what Paul wants to see is obviously not a bag of marbles. He's advocating for these metal shavings. Paul is wanting to see people who are drawn by the power of Christ to each other and because they're drawn to Christ through each other. And this was Jesus' prayer as well. It's essential for North Shore as well. This is the true unity of the Spirit. The problem is that it can be very fragile. Paul says in Ephesians that we need to be eager to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This means that we need to work at it. It has to be fought for. Some translations say to endeavor or make every effort to keep the unity. Basically what it means is that it doesn't just happen. It takes hard work and a lot of effort, but it's worth it. Now for the fourth principle of how Paul describes the need for unity uh, to the Philippian church, it's how do we do it? 
what is it what or what are the means of unity what are what are the principles that we need to adopt verses 3 and 4 says do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others you know i know some things are difficult to understand in scripture but this ain't one of them <laughs> paul says the first thing to do when striving for unity is to do nothing that advances your own self just don't do it if it's gonna get you further while putting someone else down don't do it it'll just lead to division just eliminate that from your motives so it's easy to recognize selfish thinking and selfish actions when it has, you know, it has to do with situations that are outside the church. They are pretty easy to spot, but it may be a bit harder to distinguish them when it's inside the church. These attitudes can plague ministries and programs inside the church as well, and we all need to be careful that our ministry doesn't become the most important thing, whatever that may be. It's easy to do because one of the marks of a good leader or volunteer is passion, right? And passion is a good thing. And I like to think that whatever it is that we lead or volunteer, that, we would, that it would be met with passion. But it's when our passions and our ambitions become all that matters, or that at least matters most to us, that's when we can get into trouble. If we don't keep our eyes on Christ and focus on Him through the lens of Scripture, then it's easy to allow our ministry or our Bible study or whatever it is to become everything to us, which only leads to conflict. It's like how Stephen Covey says that, that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. We need to keep Christ our main thing. So Paul also adds our conceit to that first principle. This is very similar to the first principle, but focuses more on our personal glory. This is someone that is out to seek glory for themselves, and that's it. This is the kind of person who is assertive and arrogant and claims to have the right opinion, even though they don't. Who else fits in this bucket? <laughs> this type of attitude will always drive discord and rivalry, whether intentionally or unintentionally, and will always be the enemy of unity. Now, the first two principles were negative, and the third principle is positive. It says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. In one sense, this third point basically counters or reverses the first two. Instead of being personally ambitious and personally vain, and rather than being proud of what those things reflect, we are to maintain humility and regard others more important than ourselves. Now, although we... That the command may be clear, the challenge is in actually doing it. How do we literally regard others more important than ourselves? C.S. Lewis said it this way, that true humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's just thinking of yourself less. It's not putting yourself down, but it's lifting others up. It's putting others' needs and wants before your own. So, <clears throat> This does not mean, though, that we are to regard others as necessarily having better skill or morality, because if they don't, well, they don't. But the point is that we should regard others as worthy to be served, 
We don't think of others more and of ourselves less than we have time to serve others. We should regard others worthy to be served. What this looks like is a conscious willingness to become a servant. You have to work at it. Paul shows us this example in verses 6 through 8. He says that Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Even though Jesus is God, he's absolutely equal to God. But he says that he didn't, he didn't count himself equal to God, but took the form of a servant. Paul says that we are to count others more significant than ourselves. This word count, you could also use um, the word regard. It indicates a condition of willingness or a state of mind of servanthood, servanthood in this context. The main thing to take away from this is that Jesus humbled himself and became a servant. It's, it's hard to fathom. But Jesus did this so that we could do this as well. We need to follow his example. The fourth principle is, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. This principle falls contrary to just about everything society feeds us today. Our world is saturated with self-love, self-esteem, self-help, self-this, self-that. We are really good at looking to our own self-interest, but we need to also be on the lookout for the needs of others. The, the idea here has to do with legitimate interests, ministry interests, things that would honor the Lord, things that, would, that are part of our responsibility as Christians. But what he's also saying is that we don't only just do that, we also, we're, we also look out for the interests of others. The word interest here means, means basically things and is very generic. Things could mean a lot of things, right? And probably to the point. So it leads me to think that he's trying to be um, generic. He's just trying to say that while you're busy attending to matters which are in your own heart and are your own responsibility, be equally concerned about the same matters in the lives of those around you. Basically, it means help those that need help. It's pretty simple. The fifth principle that Paul is making regarding the need for unity is that Jesus is the model for all of this. Verses 5 through 8 say, Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus set aside his rights and his privileges of being God and became a human so that he could serve. His humility was greater than we can possibly imagine. It's hard to fully comprehend what Jesus gave up when he came to earth. He gave up his glory. We see in John 17 that he asked, he asked for the Father to restore him to his former glory before the world began so that we know that he had to give up glory. We don't even know what that looks like. 
We can't know exactly what that means, but it certainly means some, that he went without something for some period of time. He also had to give up some part of his relationship with God the Father. Like on the cross when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For a certain period of time, there was a disconnect between God the Father and the Son. The Son became our sin, and the Father had to turn away. Jesus took on our punishment and became the very thing that we could not do. Jesus modeled perfect humility during this time on earth, and because of that, he showed us how to live with perfect unity. He gave up a lot, obviously, but that's what humility does. And that's what Paul is saying here. Humility recognizes its rights and its privileges, but doesn't grip them too tightly. Rather, because it seems the need of another is right, rather because we see the need of another as more important, we're willing to let go of our rights. Unity in the church comes out of humility, and humility is nothing more than considering others' needs more important than ours. We can all do this, and we must all do this. Now to look at these principles again. Because it's so important that we get this right, the first thing that we do is eliminate selfishness. That's that personal ambition that ties us to our stuff. Then we eliminate empty conceit. That's that driving ambition to see your name exalted and yourself lifted up. The third principle is that we look at others more significant than ourselves then that will allow us to give more attention than we give ourselves, more trust, more confidence, and to think more highly of them. And then the fourth principle, let each of you not look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Don't get caught in the trap where your life is consumed with only your things, with only your stuff. We have too much stuff as it is. Finally, the fifth principle, our model for living in unity is detailed out by what Jesus did for us in his death. He showed us what perfect humility was by freely giving of himself and being obedient unto death. There is no greater love than this, than what Jesus did. So now in, in closing, North Shore Church, I'm giving you some homework. I want you to pretend that Paul is alive right now and sitting in prison somewhere, because he was always in prison, <laughs> and he's writing this letter to us. Or he just wrote this letter to us. So what are you going to do with it? Are you going to be encouraged and meet his charge? Or are you going to just disregard it? It's up to you. I'd like to challenge you, though, that at least read the text that we have for today, this Philippians, um, uh, the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you through it and see where it takes you. I promise you that you won't be met with silence. Put these principles into practice and into action and ask that you be shown how to proceed. God will show up. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the joy of your word. It is ever relevant and applicable. Even though we are confronted, even though we are faced with our sin and our fallenness, 
we still rejoice because our hearts are longing to do what is right. We want to be delivered from sin and to walk a path of righteousness. Father, I ask that you would confirm to our hearts all of these things that we have heard this morning, that we may, that we may be more like Christ, who is never selfish. He never had empty conceit. And even though it's difficult to fathom, he even regarded others as even more important than himself. That's how important we are in his eyes. Jesus, we will always, Jesus will always be our model and our standard for unity. Help us, Father, to be more like Jesus. Help us to be consumed with those things that please you and that bring you the unity of your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.